You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning, Town Center. So we're continuing in our sermon series entitled Witness, and we're going to have a Bible reading from the book of Acts, chapter 12. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. So if you're using a Bible app, you might want to choose the NLT. And in honor of God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 24. Peter's miraculous escape from prison. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison... The church prayed very earnestly for him. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals, and he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel's order. So Peter left the cell, followed the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and for what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door and the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said, and then he went to another place. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left to Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a standing ovation, shouting, It's the voice of a god, not of a man. 
Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord continued to spread, and there were many new believers. The word of the Lord to us today. Please be seated. Good morning. My name's Marty. I'm one of the pastors at CA Church, and it's so great to worship with you this morning. And one of the things we do when we worship is obviously we sing together, we listen to God's word, and we also trust God with our finances. And so this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. We are going to take an offering, um, and so if the ushers can come forward. And so again, we can give. You can give in many ways at CA Church. You can give on Sunday through our ushers. You can give online, and I think there should be a slide. Uh, that tells you the different ways you can give. If you're a guest here, uh, again, there's no obligation to give. We're just happy you're with us this morning. So as Sharon said, and thanks for reading this morning, Sharon, uh, we have been in studying the book of Acts. We took a break over Christmas, and we're looking at the stories of Jesus' uh, announcement of Jesus coming through the angels, but we're back into the book of Acts. And if you remember back in November, uh, um, Luke had been taking us through the way the church had been advancing since the death of Stephen. And so the church had gone to the Samaritans and to the Ethiopians and to Paul of Tarsus and to um, Cornelius, the Gentile. And God had been at work in powerful ways. But the church had also faced many challenges in this period. And as we continue on in Luke, and from what you heard this morning, the church continues to face deadly opposition. And so we're back in Jerusalem this morning. And the events take place in around AD 43, 10 years after Jesus' death. So let's pray. So God, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the ways that you have worked in the past in the church. We thank you for the ways you are still at work. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, how you are at work and enable us to participate in the great work that you are doing around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're 43 AD, and there's a new ruler in town, Herod Agrippa. He's the nephew of the former Herod Antipas, who was the ruler during Jesus' life. And he is known in history for great building projects. He was really popular amongst the Jewish people because he practiced some of their customs, being a Jew himself. But he was also very Roman, and he actually grew up in Rome. He was friends with some of the imperial household, and he was a very loyal ally of the Roman Empire. He was willing to shut down any opposition to Rome. And the story begins by announcing that Herod has arrested some of the believers and has had one of the apostles put to death by beheading. Now, this happened at the time of the Passover. And if you remember, the Passover is a festival to celebrate how God freed the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. And so the story begins with irony, because as they are celebrating their freedom, they are actually also celebrating the capture of, their, of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine being a Christian in Jerusalem at this point? What would that feel like? There must have been shock and fear. They remember Stephen being killed, but that was years ago, about seven years ago. But now things are heating up again. 
James, a key leader, has been executed. So should they pack up their things and run like they did last time? What is going to happen next? And very quickly, things get worse. And King Herod loves the approval he's gotten from uh, the people of Jerusalem for killing James. And so he's inspired to keep going. Herod is the kind of leader who is motivated by the admiration of others. And we don't even really know whether Herod had a problem with Christians or if he just was arresting them to get the approval of the Jewish leaders. But for whatever reason, he arrests Peter and he holds him in prison over the Passover, ready to try him once Passover is over. And Herod is taking no chances. He has Peter guarded by four squads of four men to make sure that he cannot escape. And as Passover ends and Peter's final night approaches, everyone in Jerusalem must have been thinking, this is it for Peter. So this takes us to verse 5, and I have put up a more literal translation so you can see a couple of key things. So first, the word fervently. This is a word that Luke has chosen that's the strongest possible word. It means intensity of feelings and thoughts and will, praying with agony. So the church is straining and continuously praying that Peter would be freed. And then there's the so and the but. And this is a description of the life of faith. So bad things are happening in Jerusalem. But something else is happening as the church gathers to pray so God might change things. And all around the world today, there are followers of Jesus who are suffering. They're in prison, they're persecuted, they're in dire circumstances, and the church is gathering together fervently to pray for them. So what does this say to us as a church? First, prayer is not just an individual thing. Prayer isn't just something where we sit at home and talk to God by ourselves, but it's something we're called to do together. And so I'm so encouraged when the people of CA Church gather together to pray in our community groups. When you fill out the card um, that Brad talked about, people post on our private Facebook page prayer requests. um, Your leaders gather before church on Sunday mornings to pray. And um, this is what God is calling us to do as a church, to bear one another's burdens, to pray uh, for God to intervene. And secondly, we're called as a church to pray passionately, earnestly, fervently, not just a feeble, oh God, you know, if you could, could you help us? But this earnest, consistent kind of prayer. So in our church, what are some things that push us to pray in such an earnest way? Shout out anything if you have any things that you can remember we've prayed for in this way. Crisis. Yeah, people in crisis. Fear. Yeah, f- fear. That people in our city would come to know Jesus. Yeah, our longing to see people come to know Jesus. There are these things that we gather together and we ask God for and we hope for. And some of you are here and you're new to faith. You might not really have experienced this kind of prayer and it may seem strange to you, but I want to invite you to join in with your community group as they pray or when we pray together as a larger church to see how God works through the prayers of his people. But let's get back to the story. So here we are in verse 5. Peter's kept in prison, but prayer was being made by the church. And in verse 6, we find Peter. He's chained between two soldiers, and there's guards at the door, and fresh ones rotating in, and it's his last night before his trial. 
And surprisingly, Peter is soundly asleep. Now, I wonder if he's sleeping because he is trusting himself into God's hands. I don't think I would be sleeping at this point. <laughs> I think I would be worrying. But, and Peter doesn't know if he'll be saved or if he will be condemned to death the next day. But he knows that God is good. And he knows that God is for him. This is the kind of trust that comes from years of trusting God, from taking risks and seeing how God enters in. It comes from knowing God's love and intimate care for him. And if you think back 10 years ago to when Jesus was crucified and Peter denied Jesus three times, this sleeping Peter is a very different man. He is a man who knows the goodness of God. So Peter is sleeping and the church is praying. And then we get to verse 7. And in the NASB, it translates the Greek word behold. And behold is something amazing is going to happen. Um, and this is something you'll see as you read throughout the scriptures. God is a God who listens to the prayers of God's people. And God responds and acts. And so behold, this angel appears. And there's light shining around. I don't know if you remember uh, the angel announcing things to the shepherds, but it sounds a little bit like this. Um, and so the angel strikes Peter on his side to wake him up, and Peter's chains just fall off his wrist. Peter's only half awake at this point, and the angel has to instruct him how to get dressed. Okay, Peter, put your belt on, and get your sandals on, and now your coat. And you can see a better humor as Luke writes this. Um, Peter's a bit of, like a little child getting dressed when he's half asleep. So Peter doesn't really know what's happening. Is this a dream? Is this a vision? And you can see that Peter isn't expecting to get rescued. This is a surprise to him. And the angel leads him out past the guards. And when they come to an iron gate, it opens itself. And this was long before the days of remote control gate openers. And the Greek word is automateo. This gate opens automatically. The angel takes Peter out and then the angel leaves. And so we get to verse 11. And now finally Peter is fully awake and he sees what's happening. He recognizes that he has been delivered and that all the things that Herod and the people of Jerusalem were hoping would happen to him all their plans have been foiled now I don't know if you can imagine being Peter but I'm sure with all that even all that he's seen and heard he didn't expect this he isn't prepared for such a miraculous deliverance for an angel to come for his chains to fall off for a gate to open automatically and I think, like Peter, we do not expect miraculous things to happen. And I think it's easy to read these stories and think about how God acted in the past and think that God no longer does such things. These are no longer true. God, this, but this is not true. God is still active and answering prayer. And there are many stories uh, in the church around the world of how God is acting. But I'm going to just share one with you this morning. And this is a story from the early 20th century. And there was a man named Sundar Singh. He was a former Sikh. He came to faith in Jesus. And he felt called to share the good news in, in, um, in the area of India and Tibet. 
And Tibet at that time was very hostile to the Christian faith. It was very dangerous for him to go to Tibet and share about Jesus. But he did it. He did it over 20 times. But in 1912, in the Tibetan village of Lazar, he was arrested by the leader, who is called the Grand Lama. And he was thrown into a pit of rotting bodies. And on the way down, he broke his arm. The pit was sealed, and it was locked. And the only one who had the key to the pit was the Grand Lama. So there's Sundar down in the pit. He's obviously in pain. It's dark and it's smelly. Um, He is praying. Um, And three nights later, the grate opens and a rope comes down. And the rope has a loop on the end of it. And because he has a broken arm, this is perfect for him. He can put his foot in the loop and hold on with the other arm. And he gets pulled out of the pit. The grate's replaced and locked again. And he looks around to thank the person who saved him and they're gone at this point he's recovering his arm is healed and he decides to get up the next morning and start preaching about jesus again in lazar and so the grand lama finds him and arrests him again and he's furious who let him out who stole his key and he questions sunder And then the Grand Lama pulls out of his pocket his key ring, and he notices that the only key to the grate is still on the key ring, and he is afraid. And so he frees Sundar, and Sundar, he sends him out of town. There are many stories like this around the world, especially coming out of China, of Chinese leaders who are arrested, they're tortured in prison, and somehow they're miraculously released. Um, One such person is Brother Yoon from China, who wrote the book, The Heavenly Man. God is still at work, and God is able to save. And so Peter, being the first one to to be released from prison, recognizes the miracle of this, and he heads off to tell his friends what has happened to him. And so he comes to the house of Mary, where all the people who are praying for him are gathered. And Mary is the mother of John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. She's a wealthy woman. She has this big house with an outer court and a servant. And Peter knocks on the door. And the servant, Rhoda, goes to the door, hears Peter's voice, recognizes him, and runs back in to tell everyone that Peter's outside. Now imagine this. Here's Peter. He's just escaped. He's knocking on the the door. He's probably looking both ways to make sure no one's chasing him, and he's standing outside the door. When Rhoda goes in, she has to argue with the people who are praying. They're praying for Peter's release, but they actually don't believe he's at release. They can't believe he's at the door, and so they argue with her. Finally, she convinces them that Peter's outside. They rush to the door. They open it, and Peter enters. And they're so, so, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, um, but I think often as humans, when we get answers to our prayers, we're like, what? God answered my prayer? Really? I can't believe it. Uh, at Christmas, we had such a story. A couple days before Christmas, in the cold snap, our hot water pipe to our kitchen sink froze. And this was bad news because the only way to get to it is cut open our kitchen floor. And uh, so we were pretty stressed. We were like, oh, this won't be covered by insurance. And so we texted all our friends, please pray for us. And so 
you know, a day, day and a half goes on, we're praying, you know, hot water tap, please unthaw, we're heating everything in our kitchen, nothing happens, our friends are praying. And then a good friend of ours from New Zealand calls, randomly, doesn't usually call to wish us happy Christmas, and he is a great prayer, he sees lots of amazing things happen, and so he just prays, God, open the tap now. My husband walks downstairs, and the water starts dripping slowly, 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 and then it's pouring out of the tap, the, ta- the pipes did not break. It was a miraculous answer to our prayer. But we both did, looked at each other and were like, did God answer that prayer? Or was this just a random event? And, and uh, I think that happens for a lot of us. So don't be judgmental of those of, of us who wonder, uh, does God answer our prayer? Because how many times do we pray and our prayers aren't answered? Um, we all have questions about prayer. How does prayer work? When does God answer and when doesn't God answer prayer? And I'm sure the church was praying for James. They were praying that James would be freed from prison and he was executed. But So it's not surprising. They were surprised that Peter is saved. So Rhoda, as I said, she opens the door uh, for Peter, lets Peter in, and the, his friends are overjoyed and they're so excited that Peter can't get a word in edgewise, so he suggests you're quiet, quiet. He tells them his story, they celebrate, and then he slips out to an unknown place to keep himself safe. And Peter is wise. He knows that it's not time to go in public. It's not time to risk his life, that God has more for him to do. So then we come to verse 18. And in the morning, the guards realize that Peter is gone and no one can find him. And they look everywhere for them and they can't find him. And Herod is not moved by Peter's miraculous escape from prison. He doesn't turn to God and worship God. He doesn't repent of what he's done. Instead, he's embarrassed. And he's trying to save face before the people of Jerusalem. How could his many guards and locks not work? And so to save face, he blames the guards and he executes them. And then he leaves town and goes to Caesarea. And the story goes on and Luke uh, verses 20 to 23 record events that likely happened a year after Peter uh, was freed from prison. And we know this because the Jewish historian Josephus writes about these events as well. And so in Caesarea, Herod is continuing to, to rule the country. He's continuing to seek support and praise of others. And he's standing in front of the people in his royal robes and some of the people say to him they say this this is the voice of a god and not of a man and Herod doesn't correct them he doesn't give glory or honor to God and an angel visits Herod and the outcome is not good and Herod is eaten by worms and dies now this is the way all narcissistic corrupt leaders eventually end. Like God takes them down. Like leaders like Herod and, and Caesar and Stalin and Idiomin and Pol Pot. And Luke ends this story with the following words. But the word of God continues to spread and flourish. This end to Herod is a great reversal. Our story begins with Herod in power, with James dead, with Peter arrested. But God has the last word. And our story ends with Herod's power stripped from him, Herod dead, and the church growing. This speaks of a significant truth that I want to highlight this morning. That God alone is sovereign. God has the ultimate 
power and authority to rule, and he is able to override all other powers and authorities. God is not afraid of Herod's and Caesar's, and despite what it may feel like to us at times, these world rulers do not have power to thwart God's purposes for the world. Mary, the mother of Jesus, prays this in Luke 1. She says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. This is a powerful prayer. It's called the Magnificat. And at times, rulers have even banned this prayer by Mary from being read in the church. This happened uh, under British rule in India. This happened by the Guatemalan government in the 1980s. Mary's prayer that recognizes God's sovereignty is a dangerous prayer. And in this prayer, Mary declares the truth that it is God who rules the universe. And God is the God of reversals. The humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. And as we look around the world at people with power and wealth, those who hoard what they have and ignore the hungry and abuse the weak, we can know that God is the God of reversals, that they will be humbled. And I remember when I was a new believer at UBC, I was overwhelmed by the hostility I was experiencing towards my faith. And I went into a bathroom stall, and there was this little message on the stall. Uh, Someone had written, God is dead, Nietzsche. And then under it, someone else had written, Nietzsche is dead, God. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so many of you may have seen this somewhere, but this was new for me. And if you don't know him, Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher in the late 19th century. He was a very smart man. He was an atheist, and he wrote about the impact of the death of God on the West. But his disbelief in God didn't impact the truth of God's power and rule. And as we read this story today, we recognize for a brief time, Herod could celebrate, James is dead. But within a short time, God in turn could say, Herod is dead. And Jesus himself is the ultimate proof of the victory of God. So Jesus, as we know, when he was crucified, was buried for three days. And in those three days, the powers, both human and evil, thought that they had beaten God. They could delight in Jesus' death. They thought they had won. But a short time later, Jesus rose from the dead, and he was victorious over evil and death, never to die again. In Colossians 2.15, Paul writes, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The truth is that those who oppose Jesus will lose. And the church in Jerusalem at this moment, after James' death and after Peter's arrest, must have felt very small and powerless in this big Roman Empire. And I think the church in Canada also also feels small and unimportant and powerless against the tide of secularism in our country. But the truth is that if we stay with Jesus, we win. And if we oppose him, we will lose. God is sovereign. We don't need to be afraid. So be encouraged. God is in control. We don't need to fear our world leaders or philosophies. They will come and go. Be courageous and share the good news of Jesus with people we meet.
Now, however true this is, that God is sovereign, this morning our story doesn't resolve everything into a nice, neat package. And I think it raises a couple questions that I want to address. The first is, if God is in control, if everything will work out in the end, why does the church have to pray? Can't we just rest in what God's doing? If God knows everything and does what God wants to do, if God is all-powerful, why does he need us to pray? The second question I want to talk about is, if God is in control, why did he save Peter and not James? If God is sovereign, why didn't God move earlier? Why didn't he send the worms to get Herod before Herod killed James? So let me address these two questions. First, in the area of prayer. If God is in control, if God knows what's best, why does the church need to pray? Now, sometimes these kind of questions can keep us from praying. They keep us stuck because we're like, oh, we don't need to pray. God's doing the work anyways. And I want to confess at times in my faith journey, I've been unmotivated to pray, unmotivated to pray because I've had these questions too. Now, I don't know how many of you attended uh, David's class in the fall. Did anyone hear? So David brought in a man named Dr. David Robertson from Region, and I thought he spoke to this question very powerfully. So I've tried to summarize his thoughts. But Dr. Robertson believes that a proper understanding of God's sovereignty can actually enliven our prayer life rather than quench it, as we realize that God wants to act through us. So we serve a God who's not like a dictator. God uh, doesn't want to keep all the power for himself. God is the kind of God who shares his power with others, and he chooses to empower other people. And one way he does this is by inviting the church to pray. Prayer is one of the most powerful forces in the world. And it's so important that God prays. In Romans 8, it says the Spirit intercedes. And in Hebrews, it says that Jesus intercedes. So God is praying. This means that prayer is not just a human activity. Prayer is not just something we do for God. It's something that God does for us, in us, and with us. The Spirit is present, and the Spirit is praying with you and in you. And we have been invited by God to join this very powerful activity. And God lets anyone pray. You, whoever you are, it doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus. It doesn't matter your age or your sex or your financial position. We're all invited into this most powerful activity to join with God in what God is doing in the world and to discern and partner with God in this. And through our prayers, we become part of something bigger than ourselves. We are the means by which God may want to act. And so the church... As we see in this story, we're called to fervent prayer. We're called to corporate prayer, to faithful prayer. And sometimes when we pray, there is a miraculous deliverance, like we saw in the story of Peter. But sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers. And this is hard to understand. If God is good, why doesn't he intervene? And so we look around the world and we see evil, we see injustice, persecution and pain and exploitation. And I think sometimes it's easy to sit back passively and judge God. God, what are you doing? Why aren't you fixing things? 
But God invites us not to sit back and judge, but to actively participate in God's work in bringing about God's purposes in the world. And one of the ways we do this, not the only way, is through prayer. But even when we do pray, we pray fervently, we pray corporately, sometimes bad things happen to those we love, to the church around the world. And how do we understand this? So if you notice in the book of Acts, the church suffers a lot. And God knows that suffering can sometimes be for our good. It causes us to become more like Jesus. It causes us to lean more on God. It causes us to lean less on ourselves and our own power and understanding. Suffering moves us towards God. Suffering can also strengthen our faith and obedience. So I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel. But they were three leaders uh, in captivity in Babylon. They were followers of, of the one true God. And they refused to bow down and worship the idols of Babylon. They were brought before the king and they demonstrate this deep trust in God. So I want to read what they said just as they are about to be thrown into a fiery furnace. They, they said this to the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves <clears throat> before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. <clears throat> but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is the kind of faith I want to have. And this... When it's hard to understand what God is doing, I want to be able to trust God. I had a, a great friend, her name was Linda, who exemplified this. And it's the one-year anniversary of Linda's death. Uh, she was a young, youngish woman in her early 50s with a young son, and she had breast cancer. And hundreds of us, hundreds of our friends, gathered regularly to pray for her healing. And God did not heal her. And we do not know why. But Right to the end, Linda trusted in God's goodness. She never doubted and she never complained. And she modeled what it's like to trust that God knows more than we know. Tim Keller in his book on prayer says this, In prayer, God will either give us what we ask for or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. And so again, prayer exemplifies our trust in God's sovereignty, our trust in God's goodness. And when our prayers are not answered, it's important to remember that when we pray, the outcome or winning the battle isn't the key to make it an effective prayer. Prayer isn't a technology or an instrument where you say the right words and then the right things happen. And God is not arbitrary in answering or denying prayer. He's answering the prayer according to the good work that he's doing. So when we pray, remember, there's more going on than we can see. And we can learn to trust God in the midst of prayers that are not answered. An example of this is the Dutch writer Corrie Ten Boom. She and her sister Betsy were sent to a Nazi concentration camp, Ravensbrück, for harboring Jews in the Second World War. And their con the conditions in Ravensbrück were horrendous. The treatment of their pr other prisoners were unspeakable. They were surrounded by evil and suffering and torture. And it was so awful they couldn't make sense of it. 
One day, Corey and her sister were moved to a new barracks, and this barrack had horrible straw that was filled with fleas, and the fleas covered them and bit them. And Corey was just horrified by this. After everything they'd gone through, how could they handle these fleas? And so Betsy tried to encourage Corey to trust in God's care and provision, to trust that God knew what he was doing, to thank God for the fleas. But she said, this was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for the, the fleas. But after the war, Corey came to realize that the fleas were actually a gift from God. That what the flea, no, God, no guard wanted to enter their barracks because of the fleas. This gave them the freedom to have Bible studies. It kept the women in their barracks from being harassed, from being abused. And so none of the women in their barracks were assaulted. And so through the fleas, God protected these women from much worse things than can happen and gave them an opportunity to care and comfort each other. God sees the big picture when we don't. And so we pray with confidence, knowing that God is with us. And we pray that knowing that even if we don't know the small end to our story, will our friend be healed? Will my pipes burst? Will another friend of mine come to faith? We do know that the big end has already been decided. That Jesus will return. Jesus will remove all evil and suffering and death from the world, that Jesus will establish his kingdom of peace. We do not need to be afraid. God is sovereign, and God will be victorious. And so we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who, who with confidence endured the cross, defeating the powers of sin and death. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us of this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So Jesus, through his resurrection, has broken the fear of death and set us free from sin. And so this morning as I close, I want to invite us to consider that as we come to the communion table. That through the death and resurrection, the end has been decided. A, the great reversal has been come, has, has, is coming, and God is making all things right. So let's pray. So God, we come before you and we thank you uh, for this story of the church in Jerusalem, for, ga- for the way they gathered and trusted God, and for this deliverance of Peter. And God, we trust that you will enliven the meaning of prayer for us, that you will enable us to trust you in the midst of our prayers, to trust that you are a God who is making all things right. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.